Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Before I started preparing for this podcast, I'd never have guessed that some creatures are theoretically capable of living forever. Examples of immortality litter the animal and plant kingdoms. There is no single unifying factor. Size, environment and life cycle seem to have had no impact on the evolution of immortality. Turritopsis nutricula, a tiny species of jellyfish and distantly related freshwater hydra, are biologically immortal. This means that they can theoretically live forever, but in reality will probably die from predation. Planarian flatworms are considered immortal under the edge of a knife. You can cut them into nearly 300 fragments and still each piece will regenerate an entirely new organism. That was an extract from an essay we found on the Naked Scientist website by the science journalist Alexandra Ashcroft. Perhaps it's a gratifying thought that some jellyfish, like fame in the eponymous movie, can last forever. But we human beings know only too well that we're destined to die. And that's our subject this week, death and dying. How to cope with it when those we love die, how to plan for it. Not always possible. What if we're knocked over by a car? Medical advances mean life can be prolonged as never before. There's a whole battery of heroic and expensive end-of-life interventions at our disposal. But is this the right way to go? Or could this resource be better deployed in other areas of medicine? With me to discuss what we've called good grief are Ray Tallis, formerly Professor of Geriatric Medicine at the University of Manchester and author of books on a wide range of subjects, including the philosophy of mind, as well as medicine. He's currently working on a book about grief. And someone who deals with grief on a daily basis, Cassandra Geisel, 
managing director of the funeral service Exit Here, which continues to offer emotional support to the bereaved long after the funeral is over. Welcome both. Do we need to stop dreaming about immortality, Ray? I think we probably do. I have to say that rather disappoints me because a lot of people are sick of Raymond Tallis, but I can't get enough of him. And I'll always feel that I'm a bit shortchanged if I actually do disappear from this planet. But it seems highly unlikely that such a complex organism as ourselves can survive indefinitely. Of course, people have looked at other ways of trying to extend our life, going beyond biology to cyber technology, uh, even the, the fantasy of, as it were, uploading our consciousness onto non-degradable materials, such as computers and so on, I think none of that, for all sorts of reasons we might go into, is going to deliver immortality. So frankly, we have to face up to the fact that we are going to die. It will always or usually feel premature. Absolutely. I think when it comes to immortality, as humans, I think our nature is to want to progress and want to learn and do all the things we can to sort of prevent this inevitable truth that we are going to die and that we do have a limited time here on earth and we'll do sort of anything to change that. But for me, I think when you start playing with the nature of of the life course, it can get really tricky, but there are some really interesting sort of projects being done. For example, they've tried to introduce VR into graveyards Um, This sort of idea that you could go to a graveyard, see your loved one in VR form, and it's a holograph and can interact. But again, where does that stop? And what does the ethics behind that look like? I think it can be sort of scary when you start to play with post-death autonomy of the person. Cassandra, I was very interested in what you just referred to about going to a graveyard where you actually have some kind of VR experience or perhaps a holographic representation of the person who's died. And actually, I would find that particularly disturbing rather than consoling, because you imagine this plausible image wouldn't have any consciousness. It wouldn't be addressing you as you address it. It'd be like a sort of upgraded version of Alexa, in a way. And that would be really incredibly disturbing. On the question of immortality, Ray, we read reports about Facebook and other electronic media that keep people alive, as it were. Isn't that immortality? I don't think it is. I mean, I often think of a statue in the sunlight. Does it enjoy the sunshine on its arm? The answer is no, of course not. So you you haven't got the conscious person in all their electronic legacy, as it were. But more importantly, there is the fantasy that somehow we can upload our consciousness onto some non-degradable material. And I'm afraid that will always remain a fantasy for several reasons. One is all you can upload is information. And our consciousness is more than information. Information is general. That's why it's intelligible. Our consciousness is utterly singular and me. And the other is if you're really going to upload me, I'm inseparable from you and they, and we'd have to upload everybody uh, in order that I would have a world to wake up into uh, in my new silicon or whatever non-degradable form. So I'm afraid transhumanist fantasies of immortality will remain forever fantasies. So are we victims of medical advances in the sense that we're shielded from death much more today than in the past? I think it's true. During the course of our life, we encounter death less. 
infant mortality has fallen in developed countries and so on, in fact, worldwide. Uh, so we have less encounter in our daily lives with the reality of death. And so that does implant the idea that it's normal to carry on living brackets forever on brackets. Yeah, I think the medicalization of death is a blessing, but mostly a curse, to be honest. I think in Western societies, we're taught now to out of sight, out of mind sort of deal. You know, as soon as somebody passes away or dies, really, I catch myself, you know, sometimes using this language of passing away and they've gone to somewhere better. But no, I need to like sort of check myself and say, no, the person's died and just say it how it is because it's feeding into this sort of narrative that it's happening to someone else. It's happening out there. And I think with the increased medicalization of death, we are just sort of increasing the fear. It keeps it taboo and it keeps it mysterious and it keeps it scary and inaccessible, frankly. I just think when you're sort of confronted with it or interact with it, I don't think confronted is the right word. I think when you interact with death, you sort of see it for what it is. And it's quite beautiful when you are able to acknowledge it. But by hiding it away, and for example, when someone dies at home, it's, okay, immediately we need to call someone to pick them up and get them out of here. And we immediately need to get them away and gone. And then some people refuse to do a viewing or open casket, whatever. They're just, they're gone. And you don't see them again. And I mean, the lack of experience of death in everyday life does lead, as Cassandra was saying, to a lack of acceptance of death. And that can make medicine and medical decisions and rational medical decisions very difficult indeed. There's a lovely quote from Theodore Dalrymple, who sort of, as it were, parodies Rousseau when he says, man is born everywhere immortal, and yet he dies. Somebody must have made a blunder. And the inability to accept that we're mortal means that often we chase long odds to very grim ends when it comes to end-of-life care, or indeed failure to recognise we've reached end of life, and people have very aggressive, unpleasant treatments, very expensive, that bring very little in the way of benefit. And that's often driven in healthcare systems uh, that are privately funded, where clearly the more treatment somebody has, the more the medical system or the industry will benefit. During the time that the person's alive and suffering with an illness, it can be really hard to sort of make these executive decisions to stop the treatment or whatever it may be. But the effects afterwards, which Ray touched on, it's traumatizing. It's traumatizing to see the person you love most in the world emaciated or in agonizing pain. It's really hard to cope with that afterwards. Maybe you shouldn't make it all about you and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is it affects you and it will affect you negatively. You enjoy them because they're still with you. You're also being sort of traumatized, to be honest. And I think that's something that I, I just wanted to, to touch on because I've sat there with people that have just recalled these experiences at the end. And you can just see that it tears them apart. You know, it's the thing they think about before they go to sleep. It's the thing they think about when they wake up. Um, and it's quite detrimental, I think. And that seems to me central when we're thinking about good grief, is how do you get over a bereavement? And there is a resistance within oneself to getting over it. I don't want to get over the loss of the love of my life, somebody I've lived with 50 or more years, um, because that would be getting over myself. It would be almost a kind of betrayal. 
to suddenly think, oh, well, that's over. Uh, you know, now let's look to the future. So actually, there's a lot within grief which is resisting, re quite properly resisting, getting over one's loss. It's a kind of uh, almost a duty to the person one's lost is to continue to, to miss them terribly. And I think that's one of the great difficulties, but admirable and honourable difficulties of um, good grief and bereavement. With Ray having said that, I suppose the question is, how do we help people accept death? We all accept it in principle. We certainly find it very difficult to accept it in practice when it applies to people we love or indeed to ourselves. It is really the fundamental metaphysical challenge of being a human being. And I guess Cassandra has seen this very close up, day in and day out, of people who have difficulty accepting death. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's sort of fundamental to allowing us to live a full and complete life. I completely echo what you said, right, with the idea that it's easy in principle to accept it, but when you have to interact with it, when it comes to a loved one or yourself, it's incredibly difficult. But I think the question of how do we overcome that is by talking about it. It's by having these conversations. It's by opening up, opening up the dialogue. And just by going back on what I said with the medicalization, we don't need to rush and make all these decisions. We need to know our legal rights as well as plan what we want to happen to us. And I think a lot of the time people just think, okay, I have to do this set of things and it has to be in this chronological order. And and I don't really have that much autonomy. But in reality, like, there's a lot that you can do to sort of connect with the situation that's happened and, you know, interact with the dead. I think we're constantly evaluating how we spend our time, but having death at the forefront of your mind, it kind of reiterates this idea that, you know, time's really precious. We have to face it or else we just sort of are living in fantasy, really. Ray, does your work in Dignity in Dying help us here? I mean, it's one of my long-standing preoccupations, which is that we're all entitled to as good a death as is possible. Therefore, I'm tremendously supportive of palliative care. But some people, um, particularly those in palliative care, feel almost that assisting people to die when they're terminally ill and symptoms are uncontrolled, that it's almost breaking their faith. My own feeling is there is a small group of people, and always will be, however good medicine, who have potentially terrible, terrible deaths, dragged out over a long period of time, uncontrolled symptoms. And in that circumstance, their right to choose assisted dying is extremely important in the context of ensuring that they have uh, mental capacity, ensuring there's a proper legal framework and so on. In, in that context, it seems to me that this is a very important part of palliative care. Not many people basically avail themselves of assisted dying but the knowledge that this is there as a possibility will help many, many other people. I would be much reassured if I was on a course towards death, if the knowledge that when things came unbearable, I could actually seek assistance to die in the most humane way. And it would also mean that my wife wouldn't actually, all her memories of me wouldn't be through the lens of appalling, uncontrolled symptoms, days, weeks and months. It would help her, I think, in her 
what I hope is a grieving process <laughs> rather than a rejoicing. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to the choice of dying, people need to have the choice to do it in the comforts of their domain and where they where they are comfortable. I think this idea that you have to sort of fly and travel to another country in order to have yeah. this happen, it's just so cold. It's like the antithesis to what being human is about, right? And I think it comes to a point with end-of-life care where you really, really have to look at yourself and sort of think, are these decisions being made for me or are they being made for the person that's dying? Mm. Because I think oftentimes we want to extend life for as long as possible because we can't fathom the thought of outliving this person. But it gets to a point where it's just cruel. Does that mean we need to change the law on assisted dying? Very much so. And many countries have changed the law, most recently New Zealand. But I think there's huge pressure now in the United Kingdom to change the law. The medical profession is changing its views very rapidly. Both the Royal College of Physicians and the British Medical Association have moved towards a neutral position on assisted dying because they feel that this is something for society to decide, not the medical profession. And I think uh, there is very strong support within the medical profession for a change of law, a law that has clearly set criteria, people are terminally ill, the expectation of life is six months or less, they've had good palliative care and hasn't delivered uh, what is necessary, there is no evidence of pressure from others, there's a proper legal framework. Within that, you can have a safe law on assisted dying. But should we allow medics to opt out then on conscientious grounds? I very much believe that should be the case, particularly as only a relatively small number of people require assistance to die, and it could involve a minority of doctors involved in the process. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Ray Tallis and Cassandra Geisel. And we're talking about dying, death, and about what, if anything, makes a good death. We've called this podcast Good Grief, but the definition of death has become more problematic as our medical and neurological knowledge has increased. Here's John Troyer from the University of Bath speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Defying Death. I mean, one of the big questions right now is if a person who seems to be dead or is in a persistent vegetative state or has uh, is responding to stimuli, is that person still that person? Meaning, is there still a conscious person there or is it a response that is a response, but it might be different than what we think of as actually being the person, him or herself? And these are, these are the bigger questions that we're getting into now. I'd like to address the collateral problems posed by increasingly high-tech medicine. How do we handle this, Cassandra? Well, again, I think it goes back to my point about we need to sort of really take a look at ourselves and look at the motivations behind why we're seeking these extended life treatments, et cetera, et cetera, only because it can be really, really difficult. And this is why I think planning is so necessary. I think having these conversations, being able to talk about it, removes this big question mark, this mystery around, oh my gosh, this person's dying. Maybe they can't make the decision for themselves anymore. And it removes that element of we don't know what to do. So we're just going to do what we think we're supposed to, which is just keep them alive as long as possible and make sure that they stay with us. Whereas I think if you have this conversation, which can be an evolving conversation over a long period of time, 
of what the person's actual wishes are, how they feel about it, what they want, way before it gets to the point of where they actually need the treatment. Is there too much health service resource spent on end-of-life extension by quite short periods? Would it be better spent in other ways? I know that's an incredibly difficult question, but it is a question that has to be tackled. Do you have any views on that? The problem we have perhaps begins upstream. It is the overall resource made available to the health service. Once you've determined the resource, then you can say what can be provided and what can't be provided. In our present situation in the UK, our health service is incredibly underfunded compared with other developed countries, and it's become more underfunded over the last decade. So our resources are less, so we have to make more difficult choices. And sometimes they're not even choices. They're a kind of viscosity built into the system. For example, many people who would benefit enormously from total hip replacements or from cataract operations are at the moment in a huge queue, a queue in which the the world is growing darker because of the cataract, a queue in which uh, they're at great risk of falling over, limited life and so on. Now, that's, it seems to me, where the soluble moral problems are. In other words, how much overall should you invest in the health service? Then you can talk about the competing demands of -of end-of-life care and other treatments earlier on in life. I think it's a problem at the institution level. I think it's it's not so much of, okay, where are we allocating these resources? And right, that's the issue is resources need to increase. I don't think it needs to get to this point where we have to ration, oh, do we need end-of-life care or do we need to do chemo, cancer treatments or mental health services? You know, they all need support and help. Um, So I think by sort of placing one over the other, how do you do that? You, You can't really. But don't you have to, Cassandra? I mean, one of the challenges is there are limited resources. And whilst we can acknowledge the answer is almost impossible, we surely have to accept the fact the question should be asked. Yeah, the the question has to be asked for sure, because it gets to a point where you can sort of say, well, is this worth it? Is extending someone's life by six months worth it? But then I turn to you and say, well, yeah, to that person's husband or to that person's wife or children. Yes, it is incredibly important. And so as much as we can sort of debate about where these resources are better allocated, I think you need to understand that at the basic level, I think death is, if not the most important moment of our lives, we need to account for that. We need to treat it with respect. And in order to do that, we need to have resources. I wonder in your experience, Cassandra, of exit here, and I was intrigued that you continue to offer support, emotional support, well after the person has been buried or cremated, and whether there are any insights from those conversations, weeks, months, possibly years afterwards. The reason we started extending the support after the funeral is because you're running a million miles a minute trying to plan the funeral, and it's a really great sort of thing to fixate on and to sort of distract yourself with. But then the funeral happens, the service happens, and it's like, now what? I find that often that sort of emptiness, that sort of hole in the soul type feeling of, oh my God, what do I do now? Is felt right after the service. And you need to have something in place to help people through that, right? And I think as a society, we're moving away from the clergy. And some people seek solace in the clergy. But I think oftentimes... We don't really know where to go for a sense of community and a sense of support. And so while some people are still seeking 
help in those services, I think it's becoming less and less. And so by giving this, these people an opportunity to come and, and talk and, and share and cry and laugh, it's just building a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose and meaning and in days that are really dark following a loss. I must say, I find that positive because it, it seems to me that, as you sort of indicated, the period between the death of the beloved and the funeral is a kind of phony war period, isn't it? You know, you're not really engaging with your loss. You're engaging with practical details and you've got this great ceremony coming up. And then when you absolutely face to face with the absoluteness of the loss, whether it's at the crematorium or in the cemetery, that's when all the captains and the kings depart and you're left alone. I think that's an absolutely brilliant service that is offered. Thank you. Yeah, it became increasingly obvious to us that something like this needed to be in place. And to be honest, it's sort of a privilege to be able to see that journey through. And again, I think this is also where planning comes in and talking about it prior to the death, because, you know, we've had cases where person's dying and we really actually promote this person's dying and they know that they're dying so we plan the funeral for free with them we sit and have the conversation and say what exactly do you want how do you want this to be how do you want it to look how do you want it to feel do you want people to laugh will there be crying what music what clothes what coffin everything we plan absolutely everything else in our lives and I just think why not why not take sort of control and ownership of the last event, right? It's the yeah. final send-off. And we had this woman who had terminal brain cancer and came in and she planned the whole thing. What that allows, that chaotic period after the death, between the death and the funeral, it's not really there. You're not sort of preoccupied with the plans. You're not preoccupied with, oh, what color flowers would mom want? It's kind of gives you a chance to start that healing even sooner, I think. But it does sound like from what Cassandra was telling us that there's a real benefit in planning one's own death and funeral if one has the privilege, I suppose, of being able to do so. And that's something you'd recommend. So I I can't help but end by asking the question, have you made plans for your own? Yes, I have made plans for my own funeral. And I think what's amazing about doing so is it's an everlasting project, sort of. You know, you, you have the opportunity to sort of change it and play with it and see what feels right. And for me, you know, this sounds incredibly cheesy, but this is something I've actually said for probably the past 10 years. There's this music video that's actually, it's funeral. It's one of my favorite songs from my favorite band. And I want my funeral to be a recreation of this music video. I want it to be like that. It's, it's sort of this really dramatic um, dance that, that these mourners are doing and it's beautiful and there's these umbrellas and, you know, I also really love the idea of a natural burial. There's so many things that are out there these days that people just don't really know about that are so cool. You know, you can, you can get your ashes shot out into fireworks. You can send them to space. You know, you can do whatever you want. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's your funeral. Make it reflective of you as a person, as an individual, because we're all so different. And that's what makes it so makes life so, so beautiful. Right. And so have a service that reflects that and think about what you actually want in the music, all of it. One of the most striking uh, funerals, I think, was Ted Hughes's funeral, where halfway through his voice basically was reciting Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun, and so on, in his wonderful poetic voice. 
that's the kind of intervention I think I'd like. Give everybody a fright, you know, and when they're halfway through their drink, halfway through the service, to remind you, by the way, you know, this is the chap you're putting away. That reminds me of Rabbi Lionel Blue, who not only wrote, but also narrated his obituary, which was read aloud after he died. This brought tears, but also laughter to everyone present. I'm going to bring this podcast to a dignified conclusion. Thanks to my guests, Ray Tallis and Cassandra Geisel. We'd like to hear from you at Naked Reflections. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back with more guests next week. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.